Hey, welcome to the Lifehouse Newport News podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our vision is to bring life change through Christ to all people. And we believe that happens when people say yes to Jesus, do life together, get in the game, and leave a legacy. We hope this podcast inspires and challenges you to grow in your faith. Subscribe to ensure you don't miss a single episode and share it with someone you know who may need it. Again, thank you for joining us today. Now let's get to this week's episode. But today, like I said, we, we are starting a brand new series, Love Like Jesus. I don't know about you, but it seems like our world could use a little bit of love. Anybody feel it? Anybody feel that the tension, the hatred, the kind of just like tolerance, the kind of like the tolerance level is going down? It just seems like love is growing cold, and it's crazy. One of the things that Scripture actually records Jesus saying is, is, is this, that within the final days, the love of many will grow cold. That one of the signs that we are kind of closing in on, on time is getting short is that the love for God, but also love for each other will grow cold. And Paul in 2 in Timothy 3 actually brings this up as well. Whenever he's writing to his pastoral protege, Timothy, he was training him and writing him letters to equip him and train him. And Paul actually brings up something here that I think we need to hear today. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. This is what it says. And, and like I said, this is Paul writing to Timothy. He says this, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now, here's the thing, right? People, one of, the, one of the biggest questions that I get is, are we living in the last days? Yes, we are. Now, the thing is, we have been living in the last days for 2,000 years. What you actually see recorded in Scripture, the first sermon that Peter preached. So here's the thing, the, the Holy Spirit fell, Acts chapter 2. In that same chapter, Peter he gets up and starts to preach. And one of the things he says in the first sermon ever recorded when the church started was, y'all need to do what? Repent because time is short. What was he saying? We're living in the final days. And that was 2,000 years back. The thing is, though, Christians have kind of just like taken this and just gotten hypersensitive with it. So we've gone and kind of been like, it's the last days Hunker down, buy 45,000 pounds of food, build a bunker, go in it, freak out, get insane. It's the final days. And honestly, it's, it's absolutely appalling to me to see followers of Jesus freaking out over that it's the last days. I mean, getting scared, inciting fear. And really, y'all, here's the thing. As a follower of Jesus Christ, the last thing you need to be worried or concerned about is it being the last days. Because it's been the last days for 2,000 years. So, y'all, as followers of Christ, is it the last days? Yes. Do we need to freak out? No. But uh, here's the thing. In whatever sport you're playing, the time of the game determines the kind of play you run. So here's the thing, if in football, if you're in the first quarter, you're going to be a tad more conservative. 
you're going to be a little bit more running the ball twice, maybe passing it. But when it's the two-minute warning, you change the play up. And y'all, the truth is this. We are in the two-minute warning of the world. And what, and, and what we're saying is since we are living in the final days, we don't need to freak out, but we need to live wisely. We need to live in light of it being the final days. And that's what you're going to see. Paul saying, Peter saying, even Jesus himself saying is realize the time of the game. Realize that we're in the fourth quarter, the two-minute warning. So as followers of Jesus, we need to be living wisely and living in light of the actual, that we don't know the day nor the hour. But can we as Christians, can we as Lifehouse Church stop freaking out? And here's the thing, I'm not saying you are, I'm not saying I've seen people, but here's the thing, I just don't want your heart. When you see the insanity going on out there and someone throws it out on Facebook, it's the final days. Yep, it's been final days for 2,000 years. Let's just get comfortable with it because we're there, okay? He says this, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the, in the last days. And then Paul goes on to actually describe some characteristics of the final days and possibly tell me if you can see some of this playing out. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Anybody feel this is a, sounds like the culture? Now, I want to bring out to you four, four specific things that Paul says that go, that, that go and have this word love in it. That's what he says. People will be love, lovers of themselves. Lovers of their what? Money. Love for evil. Love of pleasure. Y'all, all the carnage we see and feel, the injustice we see, the brokenness we see, the pain we see is directly related to these four loves. Love of themselves, love of money, evil, pleasure. It's not that we don't have love, but it's where our love is turned. Love is not the problem. It's where the love has turned and shifted to where love, we have become lovers of us, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, lovers of evil. The problem is not loving, it's what kind of love and where our love has focused. So whenever we start this series, love like Jesus, we have to see there is a distinct difference between what a follower of Jesus is called to love and what a follower of the culture and the world system loves. But, what, but the thing is, what we have seen, these four loves have brought themselves right into the church, right into being a follower of Christ, where people think, I mean, I can love Jesus and I can just indulge whatever I feel. I can love Jesus and I can have all the money that, that I want. Well, I'm not saying money's bad, but scripture does say the love of money is the root of, this is a crazy, all evil. 
You, you even see in our own country how that has been true. The sins of our past has all been financially motivated. Love of pleasure, love of evil instead of being a lover of good. Do, do, do y'all see the problem is not love. The problem is where the love is gone. And that is why as Jesus, as Jesus followers, it's insane to think that one of the things that Jesus said, one of the final things, one of, one of the final words that Jesus said to, to, to his disciples, he said that the defining characteristic of a follower of Jesus this is what Jesus said in John 13, 34 through 35. The context here, Jesus is with his disciples at the Last Supper. And these are some of Jesus' final words before he was crucified. And Jesus was sitting there and talking with them and having one final meal with them. And just imagine how impactful some people's final words are, right? Someone's on a hospital bed and they're giving you their final words. You lean in a little more. And that is what Jesus is doing here. And that's what the disciples are leaning in on. And Jesus says this, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love each other. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He did not say how many scriptures you quote will be the defining factor of people knowing whether you're a follower of Jesus. Jesus did not say how much power, money, and prestige you have will be the defining factor to let people know you're my follower. He said the defining factor that needs to be on people that follow me and claim the name of Jesus is love. Is love. How have we, how has so many people, if, if you were to ask them, how would you describe Christians? Probably the last word they would say is loving just full of love. And we see why there's a disconnect between Jesus and what people think about him. Paul, he even brings this up whenever he's, he's, he's writing to a different church he planted in the city of Corinth. He was talking to them. This church was so worldly. Like this church had issues, y'all. Like we ain't got stuff compared to what they had. They, they had people getting drunk at communion. We're going to take communion later. They were getting lit during communion. Just imagine that scene. We're passing around wine bottles at Lifehouse in Corona. That, that just wouldn't be a good, good thing. But just imagine, like, you brought your own wine bottle, and you're like, praise the Lord, you know? This is like, what in the world? Like, that's the kind of stuff they were doing. They, they had, I'm not going to say it. They had a lot of sexual sin going on. They would fight about spiritual gifts. Like, girl, I speak in tongues. I don't care about your prophecy. Like, they were just like, that ain't as good. And they were fighting and bickering. And Paul had to set them straight. Paul had to say, look, I, I, you know, y'all got a lot of sin issues. Y'all getting drunk at communion. Y'all got spiritual gifts. But let me tell you what the most important thing is, church in Corinth. He, he said this in 1 Corinthians 13. And you've probably, you've probably heard this before. It says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but did not love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but did not love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I had to the poor, even sacrificed my body to the flames, I could, not, I, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would gain nothing. 
Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wrong. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith. It is always hopeful, endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He's like, y'all, y'all got gifts. Y'all can even go and sacrifice. Like, love. When Jesus... Or, or somebody came up to Jesus and was like, can you sum up what, what the whole Bible says? Can you just like tell us, like if you're going to sum it, sum it up, what would you say? Jesus said this here. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. He was saying love for God, love for yourself, and love for who? Your neighbor is what is central. Romans 5, 8, this is Paul talking about the love of God. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John three sixteen. you all know this. It's on bumper stickers. All right, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Y'all, it's, I don't think it's a shock that, that we're building the foundation here that love is central to being a Christian. Jesus said it, it, it is central. Paul said it is central. We see it littered throughout Scripture. Love and Jesus should be like peas and carrots. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> quoting, Forrest, quoting Forrest Gump, right? But here's the thing. I don't, I don't think the problem is that we don't know that love is central. I think we sincerely have, have a problem defining it and then applying it to all of the different contexts of life we're in. Honestly, like, what is your definition of love? Like, if someone was to come up to you on the, on the street and say, hey, can, can you please tell me what your definition of, of love is? And really, here's the thing. The culture has tried to shape you and form you to think about what a definition of love is. And I think if we're sincerely candid, a lot of us view love as really being this whole, like, you, you never make anyone feel bad. Like, the, like, the, like, no, it's not love. If somebody's feelings are hurt, if somebody is, like, confused or someone's, you know, like, you know, love would never be mad. Like, always be humble and kind, right? You know what I'm saying? I'm singing some Tim McGraw for you. That's why I don't lead worship, right? Right? But it's just like, we just think, you know, that, that always being loving is just being humble and kind and quiet, a doormat. It's nothing that you really want to just like, whatever. I think we've really got to define honestly and sincerely as we're starting this series, love like Jesus. We've got to define what the heck love is. Because honestly, Socrates even said, said this, the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms. That we've got to make sure that even when I say love, you've got a definition that's been shaped and formed by a bunch of different things, by, by your experiences, objective and subjective. Subjective is what you think. Ah, objective is what the actual truth is, right? We've, we've all got experiences, backgrounds, and upbringings. But if we're going to talk about love, we got to make sure we're all getting on the same page and really defining what that is. Because honestly, if if, if we are true, whenever we talk about that, that we're love, based on your definition of what you think love is, you would even look at Jesus' life and you would even deem some of the things Jesus did as not being loving. 
Like, if you think love is always kind and nice and humble, it's like you would look at Jesus' life and you'd be like, oh, my God, some of the things he did were not very loving. Great example, John chapter 2, right? The apostle John records this, this one scene. The temple where typically Jews would go and, and do their religious rituals and kind of go for corporate worship and stuff like that. Um, Jesus saw that there was some stuff going on in the temple. There was some, they were selling pigeons and they were selling sacrifices and all of these religious leaders were getting really, really rich off, off of it. Um, and I'm sorry, I got like spider webs or something all over here. Anyway, sorry. Um, and then also though, you had people coming in, exchanging money. They, they, they brought like animals into the temple and Jesus sees this and Jesus gets a little bit of righteous anger in him. So it actually says Jesus went and made a whip. You're really excited about that. I, I said, he, he did. Praise God. Like, if, if Isaiah walks in, never mind, with a whip next week, we're going to have a talk. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but, but Jesus goes and just makes a whip and then comes back into the temple and starts chucking tables. Throwing money. Says he whipped the animals. Peter would not have been happy with that back in the day. He whipped the animals. Get out. Get out. Get out. Now some of us would let like that wasn't very nice. How dare Jesus do that? He said he loved people. That doesn't seem very loving. Or you just think about this one, Matthew 23. Jesus was, was in a conversation with other religious leaders, some of these same religious leaders he probably drove out of the temple. And Jesus says, hey, uh, <laughs> sorry, this is, this is funny. He, he, he was just like, hey, um, woe to you, Pharisees. Which saying woe to you back in that day, I'm trying to think of something, of something comparable now. Like, what you, what'd you say? Something appropriate, yeah, like, yo, Pharisees, listen up. He told them this. You, you go and you convert people to, to who you are, and when you do that, you actually make them twice the son of hell that you are. Jesus, that is not nice language. That was very mean. And some of y'all would even say, that's not, very, that's not very loving, but it depends on your definition of what love is. Because one of the definitions of love we actually see in 1 Corinthians 13 is love does not rejoice with injustice, but rejoices when the truth wins out. So you actually see one of the most loving things that Jesus could have done against the injustice that he was seeing, that these religious leaders were using their power and their prestige and their position to take advantage of people who were already poor. They were getting rich off of the backs of these poor people. And Jesus said, in my name, you will not do that. So it was his hate for injustice that made him act out in love. Now, that would really all depend upon what your definition of love is. And that's why we've got to take our corporate definitions of what love is and we've got to lay them down and say, Jesus, this is how the culture has shaped me and formed me to think about love. I need to lay that down so I can take on your definition of what love actually is. 
Because y'all, that is the const, that, that is the core of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus, one of the things Jesus said was this. He said, repent. Some of us think that that word repent means to just like, I'm so sorry, God. You know, and it's this really emotional decision and, and you're just repenting for something you're doing wrong. Do you, know, do you know that word within the Greek language actually means to rethink? It's not just a, you feel sorry for what you've done. To repent actually means you are learning to change the way you think about everything you've been taught by the world. And to be a follower of Jesus simply means this. You come and say, I need, to, I need help rethinking money, rethinking power, rethinking sex, rethinking culture, rethinking technology, rethinking family, rethinking marriage, rethinking relationships. As a follower of Jesus, you are essentially saying, I put down what I have been trained and, 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 and formed to think by our culture. And Jesus, I need you to help me rethink everything according to what you Define it by. And that is where love, we've got to lay our definitions down and say, Jesus, we need, we need it. But the truth is this, y'all, whenever we start to actually define love and we actually see what it is, we know how central love is, right? It's, it's, it's like we, we, we know how central love is. But if you don't have a definition Whenever you put it in context, because think about all of the different relationships that you are called to practice love in. I'll just give you a couple. Marriage. Good luck with that one. Right? Like trying to take love, and when you take a concept and give it context, it gets very complex. Okay? You can have a concept of what love is. You put it in a context. So you got love, love, love. The culture of love is just all good feelings. Then you get married complex. It gets very difficult to actually say, how do I live this out? How do I do this? And love, and just think about you, parenting. Parenting, like, you know how hard it is to get parent? Got three kids. I'm sorry. I'm just being real. Friends, like, you got friendships going on. Relatives. Gets messy bosses and employees. Like these are just a few of the relationships when God says, hey, just love people. You get the concept, sort of. You put it in context into, into one of these relationships. Then it gets complex because you got your feelings and you got what Jesus requires. And things can actually get very, very muddy. But here is what I have found, is that discovering brings definition. Now, when I say discovering, I'm talking about when you discover who God is, what love is, is clearly defined. Here's the thing, right? I thought I had a clue what parenting was. You know, you read some books have some seasoned fathers give you their fatherly advice. But also, too, even like I remember saying things when I was 15 years old. Like my mom would not let me go to parties. My mom would not let me go to stuff that all the cool parents would let their kids go to. And I would say things like, I'm never going to do this to my children. Ever. Let them do whatever they want to do. They want to go have some fun. They want to go drinking. They want to go partying. They're going to be able to do it. 
I did not, I had a very wrong definition of what parenting was. But as I grew and I discovered more as I became a parent, and as I've been a parent for nine years, the more I discover, the more definition I get of what it means to actually be a parent. I had this situation yesterday. Y'all gonna be my counseling session. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I had two boys. So, so we've got three boys, nine, seven, and five. And two of them, which I'll remain nameless, the seven and five-year-old, um, they would not listen. Would not listen. Three, three chances. So then I, I had to let them know, I'm, I, I need to discipline you. I don't like doing this, but you are not listening to me. And I think you need a reference point in your mind that when I ask you to obey me, you can maybe reference to in the future and you can know, oh, I need to actually listen. So, so I did not think that way when I was 15. I did not think discipline was loving at all. But now that I've discovered parenting, I realize discipline is one of the greatest loving things that I offer my children. It is. And I tell them, I even told them yesterday, y'all, I don't like doing this. But you give me no option. You give me no choice. And, and they'll, you know, they're so cute. They're like, when you, when, when you pop us, you don't love us. I say, y'all, that is the most loving thing that I can do. Because if you won't listen to me, you won't listen to your teachers, you won't listen to police officers, you won't listen to your city officials, you won't, like, there will be a perpetual pattern of disrespect in your life. So my job as the father in love is not to make you feel good. I even tell them that. I'm like, hey, y'all, I'm your dad. My job is to raise you. My job is to raise you. I am your friend. I, I tell them that because I don't want them to be so scared that they can't come to me with anything. I tell them that. I tell them every single night when, when we go to bed, I, I'm your father, but I'm your friend. And the father role that I play is I am not here to make you feel good. I am here to help raise you to be a man of God and to leave the house at 18. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but also, too, I am your friend. I am with you. I will have your back. You don't have to wonder if I love you. Ever. I love you. I'm for you. Now, that doesn't mean that I always tell you what you want to hear, but I'll tell you what you need to hear. Right? So, so, but here's the thing, discovering brings definition. And as we discover more of who God is, love, the definition of love becomes more clear. And y'all, this is a lifelong journey because some of you are at that beginning stage of love with God. So you think when you hit a life stage or you hit a life circumstance that you feel like you're struggling, you don't feel God's love, you think God doesn't love, love you. But it's just you haven't discovered who God is to actually see just because God loves you doesn't mean your life is always going to be Skittles and, I don't know why I said Skittles, I'm hungry. Skittles and lollipops, right? Anybody that's been following Jesus for any amount of time will tell you loving God and God, and God loving you will not always be what you feel. God, Scripture says, will discipline you, not because he hates you, but because he loves you. 
But only as you discover more of who God is will you be able to actually have a bigger definition of what love is. But look, to know what love is, to start this series off, we got to know more about who God is. First, First John 4, 7 through 8 here. This is the Apostle John wrote this book, and the Apostle John, Scripture said, well, John said it about himself. This was funny. He said, I am the one that Jesus loved. <laughs> so I think he had some favoritism there. He was like, Jesus spent most of the time with me, right? But this is what he says here. Dear friends, let us continue to love each other, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, and here's the key part, for God is love. It's not God was love, love. It's not like God will be love. God is love. So if we're going to know what love is, we got to know who God is because God is love. Now, we're going to dive into this some, all right? Can you, can you put your thinking caps on? Can, can you stick with my stuttering self? Can you? Okay, stick with me, okay? Because we're going to dive into some deep waters here, okay? Y'all good? Okay, so here's the thing, right? That, that word love, in the Greek language, there were three different words for for love, okay? The first off was the word eros, which is where we get the word erotic. So you know probably a little bit about what kind of love that is. <laughs> it's Valentine's Day. Hopefully, if you are a couple here, you will be practicing this kind of love later. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Uh, just kidding. If you're married, okay, just want to make that clear. Not <laughs> married, okay? Right? Ero- ero- erotic, right? Secondly, though, phileo, that's where we get the word, uh, or, or that's where th- that is a brotherly love. That, that, that's where we get Philadelphia, the city of what? Brotherly love, right? Phileo is a friendship love, and the Bible uses those two words in, in, in the Greek to talk about love. But then there is a third word for love that, that is used to describe the kind of love that God has. And in all the scriptures I told you, Matthew 22, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 John 4, the one we just checked out, John 13, 35, and Jesus' last, last words. When Jesus says the word love, the word he is using is this word agape, which that word agape means pure, selfless, unconditional, self-giving, self-sacrificing, defer to someone else kind of love. I don't know about you, but when I see the definition of that word agape, I am convicted because I know a lot of the love I have is not pure. It is selfish, not selfless. A lot of times my love is conditional, not unconditional. A lot of times my love is (laughs) self-receiving, not self-giving. A lot of times I don't like to sacrifice. Many times in relationships I like to take the path of least resistance that costs me nothing. But at the same time, I got the mindset I want to get all all I can get. Self-sacrificing, defer to others kind of love. Do you see, y'all, this is the kind of love that when it says God is love, when Jesus said love each other, that we're called to, but not just what kind of love we're called to, the kind of love God has and that God gives. Now, when we say, if this is the kind of love that, that God requires, this is who God is, we have to ask, who in the heck is God? Because honestly, even when I say, who is God? Some of y'all are like, well, he's that thing in the sky. 
he's that man upstairs, <laughs> right? That's my favorite. He's the man upstairs. <laughs> he's the being, like he's God. And what you have to actually see is that when you look in Scripture, and we're talking about God, God is not just some man upstairs. He's not just some powerful being, cre- creator or powerful. When, when you look in Scripture and see how God has revealed himself, he has revealed himself, and here's the big word, as a trinity. Now, if you've been in church, you know this word. If you have not been in church and you're, some, and you're somewhat new here, I get how you could kind of like break the word. Oh, trinity, it means three in unity. Good, you're, right. you're absolutely right. You are way ahead of the game here. Trinity simply means tri-unity, meaning it's three distinct and separate beings or things that are that are unified into one. So the actual Christian doc- doctrine, the teaching that has been passed down to us for thousands of years is that God is a trinity. That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three separate, distinct, equal, yet, yet unified, and they are one God. Now, here's the thing. This word Trinity is not in the Bible, so, so you can't do a word search in Scripture and say the word Trinity's in there. But that term was coined by the African theologian Tertullian, who wanted to help a church, wanted to help the church grasp and be able to understand what Scripture clearly teaches and what Scripture is littered with. Is this concept that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all separate, yet they're all God. They're all of of equal value, yet they are one God. So here's the thing. In Scripture, we don't see the word Trinity. Instead, we see the thread of the Trinity throughout, throughout Scripture. Here's the thing, right? And you've probably heard people praying this, or possibly you've even prayed this without really knowing it. Here's an example. Father God, Lord, I thank you, Jesus, that you've given me your spirit. So like in that first line, you've already said the, the, the Trinity. Father God. You know, and I mean, some of us pray all over the place. We're like, Spirit of God, thank you for filling me. Lord, I need your love, Father God. Jesus, thank you for all you've done. You know, it's, it's like we're praying and, 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 and there's people laughing because honestly, like that's sometimes, like sometimes we don't know if we're praying to the Spirit, the Father, or the Son. But the thing is this, right? The thread you see throughout Scripture is the Father, the Spirit, and the Son are not just separate gods. They're not this, just, just this like separate community. They're not just these separate people doing different things. They are one God, equal in value, separate people, yet unified in who they are. As God. I'm going to break down scripture for you so you don't think I'm cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, okay? Genesis 1, 20, 26. This was, this was the creation, uh, creation account. I'm going to get it out at, at, at some point. I say buffering. I'm, I'm buffering. We got slow service going on here. 
Genesis 1.26, this is what it said here. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image. So God was saying, let us make human beings in our. So he was obviously what? Referencing the Trinity. Deuteronomy 6.4, it says this here, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now the thing about that word one, it is the Hebrew word ikad. Which, that word ikad in the Hebrew means one made up of more than one. And the thing is this, right, Genesis 2.24, when God was bringing together Adam and Eve in marriage, one of the things he said was this, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become ikad. They become ikad. They Two separate, equal, and distinct people come together to make one. Equal, distinct, diverse, yet unified, and it's like the two become one. Yet they're separate and they're distinct, yet they're unified in who they are. Ikad, they become one flesh. You can see the Trinity even at Jesus' baptism. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, the apostle Matthew records Jesus being baptized, this way he says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven said, this is my son with whom I am very well pleased. You can see the son was being baptized. The affirming voice of the father was saying, that's my boy, I'm proud of him. And then the spirit came on Jesus. You see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Paul, when he was praying for the church in Corinth, the crazy church, he said this, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and love of God, the Father, and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He was like, church, I just don't want you to have the grace of Jesus. I want you to have the love of the Father, and I want you to have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I want you to have it all. I just don't want you to have the grace of Jesus. I want you to have the love of Father God, the grace that Jesus gives, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Y'all, I could go on, but y'all, I ain't, I, I ain't got an hour. But I just need y'all to see when who God is. God is Trinity. He is within himself a community. A community of what? Agape self-sacrificing, self-giving, unconditional, self-deferring love that God has in and of himself between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now you might say, John, why in God's holy name does that matter for this whole love thing? Well, even when you think about the kind of love that God requires, the agape love that God asks of you to have, it actually gives you, God is not asking you to do something that he hasn't already done himself. He doesn't ask you to carry out something that he has not already done or that he is not, or that, or that he already is, or that he won't equip you and empower you to be able to do. He doesn't say just love people, you creation. Just do it better. Because I think sometimes we can even think God created us because he was lonely. 
God just needed somebody to rule. He just needed someone to domineer over. No, he didn't. He had the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There was, there was community in and of himself even before he created us. He didn't create us because he was thirsting for power. He didn't create us because he wanted somebody to rule. He created us because he wanted us to do what? Experience what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the kind of love had. So creation was a what? Act of love. He wanted to overflow who he was and what he had in the Trinity, in and of himself. He wanted to pour that out on his creation. Even creation itself was an act of love, not a thirst for power, not a power play. It was saying, I want these human beings, these created beings to experience what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the community, the self-giving, the self-sacrifice, the agape love that God himself, he wanted us to be able to experience that same love. I hope y'all see this. And y'all see, if we're going to build a foundation, a definition of what love is and why we should even do it, but also, too, how God will empower us to do it. It is because of who God is, and God is Trinity. And there's going to be, y'all, I know there is a part to this that is kind of, we have a hard, we can have a hard time thinking about this, and, and y'all, I'm okay with that. Because if I had God figure it out, I don't think he'd be God. I don't want to serve just the God I can always figure out. He has chosen to reveal himself. And I have to do what, I have to make decisions based on what has been revealed to me. So, discovery of who God is brings definition to what we're called to be and what we're called to have. And that is agape love. And that doesn't make sense unless we discover who God is. So here's the thing, as we're saying love, the kind of love we're talking about is not a worldly love that is conditional, that is only make you feel good, that is only never be kind, or just always be kind. The kind of love we're talking about in this series is God-like love, agape. Keyboard, can you come up and, and please play something so I can hurry? Thank, thank you, Jarvis. Let's give it up for uh, Jarvis. Jarvis, man, I love this guy. It's so good to have Jarvis. He just came on staff with us, part-time music board. I think he's single. We're we're we're, we are glad to have him on board. I think he's single, too. So he is single, so just throwing that out there. Just, you know, you know. I think he's single and ready to mingle. As long as you, you know, as long as you love Jesus, you know. So just throwing that out there. If you have, if, if, if you have any relatives or any Jesus-loving Jesus, Jesus -loving women, uh, 21 to 29. Okay, great. Yep, just so you know. Just, just, just saying. All right, what are we talking? We're, we're talking about God's love. We ain't talking about Jarvis's love. All right, here we, here we, here we, here we. <laughs> okay, come on, guys. Come on, Jesus, help me. Here's the thing, guys. You can't love like Jesus until you've been loved by the Trinitarian God. Because it, it doesn't make sense. Like, why would God demand you do something that he has never done? Why would God demand you to do something that he is not? He will not do that unless it is who he is and what he has already led the way in. That's why Trinitarian love is so important. Y'all, it's been blowing my mind all week. 
Probably before this week, the Trinity was a great doctrine Christian word that I had studied in Bible college. And this week, it has been punching me in the face every day. The love of God. The Father heart of God. The Son came down and lived the life I could not live. A perfect life. Died a sinner's death on a cross in my place and for my sin. He just didn't die as me. He died for me and rose and defeated Satan, sin, and death. And then he, he did his job, the, what the Father asked him to do. He went into heaven. He's sitting by his Father. But Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you by yourself. I'm going to send who? My Spirit. To not just be with us, but be in us. As a follower of Jesus, you have God himself. The Holy Spirit's not less than. The Holy Spirit is not second class to Jesus. They're equal, yet they are distinct, yet they're unified. And that is what he said, I'm as followers of me, you're going to be filled. How do you think Peter? Peter couldn't stand up to three, three stinking servant girls. He got filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And who was up speaking in front of 10,000 people ready to die for this thing? Because the Spirit came in him. I want it all, y'all. Thank God for the love of the Father. The sacrifice and example of Jesus. But I'm glad that he has filled me with the power of his Holy Spirit. And the Trinity is in unity and it is available to you. And you can't understand the love of God until you understand the Trinitarian love that God is, that God has, but that God wants to give to you. Can we all just stand up, church? We're going to close. I want to pray over us Ephesians 3. This is a prayer that Paul prayed over the church, one of the churches that he planted. This is he wrote this prayer out and I just, it, it was so good that I just said, I just want to pray it over you. I want to pray it over us as a corporate church. This is what Paul, Paul said. He said, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father. It's like I can feel Paul's pastoral heart. Like Paul's experienced this love and he's like, God. And I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, <laughs> Right? It's part Trinity talk there. He says, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his what? Spirit. Then Christ. He did two verses and he's already at the Trinity. Father, strengthen them in their spirit. Christ, make your home in their hearts as you trust in him. So your roots will go down into God's what? Love. Agape. And keep you strong. And may you have the power to, and he's basically saying, God, please show them. And that's what I'm praying for us. I'm like, God, I know I said some weird terms today, Trinity, and talking about three and one. And it, I'm just praying, God, let them understand as all God's people should. How, then, then he says how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Do y'all feel this? Like Paul's almost saying, I want you to experience what you can't understand. 
That's my prayer. I pray that as you start to understand, you'll experience. But even if you don't understand, you'll experience it anyway. It says, though it's too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete. Everyone say complete. With all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Thank you again for joining us today. If you need prayer, have any questions about what you just heard or said yes to Jesus, please reach out to us at lifehousenn.com or text 757-690-2401. We'd love the opportunity to pray for you and help guide you through the next step in your faith journey. In the meantime, we hope you'll join us online next Sunday at 9 a.m. or 1030 a.m. at lifehouseonline.com or in person for a live worship service at 9.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. at the Kiln Creek Regal Theater in Newport News, Virginia. Visit lifehousenn.com for more information or to RSVP for a live service.